Dear fellow settler colonizer, I'm sitting in my garden, taking a break from grading student papers at the end of the semester where I teach at Ohio State University. It's a sunny spring day with the sound of birds, some passing traffic, construction, and the wind and the wind chimes. I'm thinking about curriculum, global indigenous arts, both within and beyond settler institutions of the university and the museum. I'm recording an introduction here because you won't hear from me again in today's episode, except for my conversation with Chinupa Hanskaluga, concept artist of settlement, indigenous digital occupation. Our episode today will be led by an indigenous educator, Jamie Morse, who works at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa in indigenous programs and outreach. She will talk about the exhibitions Sakahan from 2013 and Abadakwane of 2019, and how in that latter exhibition, the work of Yuan Nango, the Sami artist and architect, created a site and space for gathering for other artists in the exhibition, such as the Mata Aho Collective and Dana Danger, as well as indigenous community members, including members of her own family. It was thanks to Yuan Nango that I first encountered the work of Takalik Partridge, a Inuit Scottish writer, spoken word artist and curator. Takalik has generously offered two recordings of her spoken word works for today's episode, one at the beginning and one at the end of today's show. The one at the end, which is called Untitled, was created in response to a performance by indigenous Brazilian artist Danilson Baniwa and Tachalik has asked me to share a fundraiser for South American Indigenous Network Emergency Fund on GoFundMe. So if you can, please donate. Colonization is a pyramid scheme. I tell you this and you laugh, but I haven't made it up. It's all there in the handbook. If you don't have your copy, any current version will do. These days, you can find it online. You can look in your old school books too, but beware, the wording has changed, so you might not recognize it at first glance. I can tell you the basics. Once you see the outline, you'll know the scheme is deadly simple. No wonder it's so popular. We could maybe package it and sell it in three easy installments of twenty nine ninety nine, but the market's already been flooded and the model is more about taking than anything else, really. The basics. First, you show up, looking sickly, say you need some help. Look, I've got this kitten in my car. Could you give me directions? Could you spare some water, some food, perhaps your children? Next, you plant your flag. This could be in the dead of night, in a forest, on a rocky mound, in quicksand, by the shore, wherever. It doesn't need to be a flag. It could be a stick with a tattered cloth affixed. 
You could also just take a picture and draw some lines on it. Any and all will do. Next, you give them pestilence, drink, sugar and rotted teeth, wheat and needles and 25 pounds of colored glass. Next, you tell them they owe you. Pay up or leave. Next, you burn their houses down. Stop me if I've missed anything. You take away their tongues, tear up their spiritual beliefs. You foment division, nurture every fear and doubt, outlaw the way their bodies move to the music which you have also forbidden. You put them on ships, in social services offices, in zoos, in prisons, in holding centers, in museum storage, in catalogs of children up for grabs. Next, you populate the land with sheep, or dams, or bulldozers, or oil rigs, or mines. You tell them they should be so lucky picking seaweed for gunpowder. Here, you'll put the gun in their hand. Off to war, boys. We have our reasons. You don't need to understand. Next, you build up houses in your own homeland or on stolen homelands with noble cornerstones and lofty names. These houses and all the treasures in them bought with the blood of enslaved and indigenous peoples from plundered nations. But you'll never say so. Or even if you do, that's all bygones. You've devised a new system. One that's good for everyone. They should be so lucky. Next, you'll say they're lazy. They should be trying harder. Look at you and how you're doing. Why don't they just get off their asses? Next, you say you'll help them. Throw them a line with some hooks in it. If you wear this tie, you can have the keys to the safe. Tell your brother he can come too, but don't forget. No dancing. No singing. No, none of that. Next, you'll say, they're one of you. The ones that made it this far. Not top of the pyramid, but close. Close enough to get the gold watch. Close enough to lead the pep rally. Close enough that you can see yourself in their movements. And now, your job is done. Um, so my name is Jamie Morris. I was Jamie Coble up until a few years ago. Um, and I grew up in a farming family uh, in northern Alberta uh, for the first seven years of my life called Cragen. And that's where the Coble name came from, which um, was my grandmother's married name. And she's from Nidopin in uh, Germany. So she she's uh, an uh, an immigrant and my mom would be a first generation Canadian and I grew up really close to the uh, Beaver Lake First Nation and uh, that's um, just beside the farming community that's sandwiched 
on the other side with uh, Kikano Métis Settlement and Buffalo Lake Métis Settlement. So, and then Cold Lake First Nation on the other side. So my the farming community was kind of like had all these other um, indigenous uh, communities around it. So that um, kind of was really, I was fortunate to have that, you know, I thought I was fortunate to have that and that my grandma would take me a lot to some of the communities to um, practice some of our traditions, uh, Cree traditions more specifically. And, you know, that that um, included sweat lodges and included big houses. And it was just like a really um, unique experience as I now know, um, living in Ottawa. Uh, and my my dad is uh, from um, my dad's from uh, Buffalo Lake Métis Settlement, but before the settlements were actual settlements, um, like I suppose legally recognized by the province uh, in the eighties, um, it's not that long ago. He he grew up at the mission, and the mission is where um, well they had the mission school. Uh, and that's where my dad went to, to like a day school. And so he grew up there um, and was back and forth as an adult in Fort McMurray. So that kind of whole like Edmonton to Fort McMurray was, you know, my world that ex extended in my youth. And um, I moved to um, I moved to Ottawa in 2000. Um, in June, June 16th, 2000. And I've been here ever since. So I, um, yeah, had been doing a lot of traveling and I decided to come to Ottawa because, um, you know, it was just like, it was just a nice place to be. It was uh, the number one, like safest community in all of the whole country. And so that was really attractive to me since we had the highest rate of violence per capita in any RCMP detachment in Canada at the time. Um, so um, moving here, you know, it, it really sparked my interest in, in museums and the arts and, you know, things I had never, I hadn't grown up going to, but it's funny because my um, uh, dad, uh, the school that he went to was now a museum. So, um, you know, that that's something that uh, I think about often. But um, yeah, I suppose uh, being being in Ottawa has has kind of led me to think about what it's like to be um, on someone else's territory, on another Indigenous person's territory, and you know my role in being here. Um, uh, so I currently work at the National Gallery of Canada, and uh, I bring that introspection I suppose into work with me and I've you know um, helped others kind of think about it um, that we're not just kind of that we're not all of us each of us and how I've been touched by all the work that I do no matter what work I do it's personal I think this is something that's now kind of penetrating people's skin to kind of well what's my role and not just at a at an academic level or at a you know, but um, with how 
we're looking at, you know, examining our true histories, um, people are really under trying to understand their own his personal history and how it contributes to where we are now. So um, all of those things kind of, I seen a, a shift, I would say, in, in 2000 and like 13, 14. And um, Sagahan, of course, was uh, in 2013. And so it was supposed to be every, it was an international indigenous art exhibition. Um, which we didn't use that term for Abadakwane um, for for on, on purpose actually and um, but when I would give tours during Sakahan and see like non-indigenous people following along on the tour and they would ask questions after um, you know that that was like a trigger for me to think well you know, I think people are ready to learn about Indigenous issues. And, you know, mind you, I'd gone through like a, a youth, a lifetime and university and different organizations. And this is really the first time that I like saw a genuine interest that wasn't about profiting off of or that wasn't about, um, you know, benefiting from in some way. This was just like people wanting to know more. And it was... Um, uh, a generation that I hadn't, you know, even worked with very much in the past. And so, um, you know, we, there was, the purpose of the tours was so that young Indigenous children um, could see themselves in the art pieces and connect with the stories. And when, you know, older non-Indigenous people we're hanging along for the tours of all different backgrounds. Um, yeah, I think I think it really kind of gave me a confidence that people were willing to see an Indigenous language text on the wall, that people were interested in wanting to participate in some of the programming. Um, and I had some trouble at first with the, like with, with, um, helping the public to understand that there are some spaces that are just for Indigenous people in our public programming at the National Gallery. And so um, once, you know, you work through those kind of initial kinks when it comes to education, but for the public, you know, it, it's, it's, um, you have your like list of reasons and you've gone through that rough patch of how do I explain this, you know, in a way that people can understand that Indigenous spaces are important and that um, uh, even the very act of having an international Indigenous art exhibition was um, significant. So, um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess, um, and then people were really looking forward to the next like five years. Um, and it turned out to take a little bit longer um, than planned. <laughs> so, so 13, 14, 16, 18, it, it was supposed to kind of show in 2018, but we took an extra year. And part of um, the buildup to Abadakwane was, um, you know, I had just come off maternity leave. So there's that kind of life that happens. And um, I was catching up 
with all of the new things that had come up, you know, while trying to keep my toe in. So I wasn't totally blind when I came back. And um, when I um, started to learn about the Sami Architectural Library, I just remembered all of those, you know, uh, phrases uh, that were said uh, around, you know, when an elder passes away, it's like you use, you lose an entire library. And um, it's been said so many times. And then, of course, we're working on a, another exhibition right now with Benjamin West and Robert Poole. And uh, one of the speakers, language speakers that we got for that project um, passed away, you know, in the process of making relationships. And so uh, that's something that is actually, it's happened to me a few times. And as an educator and as a community member, I feel an urgency, you know, to try to work with as much community as possible. And not in the sense so that the National Gallery kind of like keeps all this knowledge um, of processes and, and all the things I'm doing, but so so that um, we can provide resources and opportunities um, for communities because, you know, only Soto speakers are going to speak Soto. And we did work with Algonquin language speakers for both um, Sakahan and Abadakwane. And we learned a lot of lessons uh, from Sakahan, um, which we implemented in Abadakwane. So we, you know, for the titles, that was important. We needed to um, consult with communities and um, uh, Sakahan, which is uh, to ignite, you know, was the, 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 the name meaning and um, and we had for our catalog uh, a gas can on the front which even though we had you know uh, Brian Youngin's um, drill hold sort of beaded uh, red country kind of gas can I think of when I think about you know filling up uh, quads and and things like that so um, even though we did the right thing in, in, you know, consulting about the name, what we didn't consult on was the cover of the text. And so that was a lesson that we had learned that we can't just like pick and choose, you know, what we consult on because it's, you know, what I grew up with in the ceremonies back in Northern Alberta, everything is connected. So whether it's the cover of of a catalog and different departments and our organization are working on that or whether it's the title. Um, so uh, with Abadakwane, we did uh, just that. So we, we, we consulted e even deeper. And as we get to know more about ourselves and our role on the land and the power that we have in um, bringing things up or discussing things or like even just putting things on the table um, that aren't seemingly so ridiculous anymore, you know, and, and they're appropriate. And so that shift, um, and I'm, and I'm really speaking to you in the context of education, because it's not just an education that's for the public, which is, you know, my role as a, a program um, and outreach uh, educator, Indigenous programs and outreach. Um, 
but but that a lot of that shift is happening internally and um while we are trying to think about our our personal connections and experiences we also have to try to stabilize our self as a unit um and uh, at the same time, understanding that there are uh, different, you know, viewpoints and social um, uh, important, like social changes that are happening right now. Um, and of course, you know, dealing with it all in isolation and COVID. And um, it, it's something that it makes, you know, the your Nango piece even more um, beautiful is because it happened, you know, months before the pandemic. And it was the last, you know, one of the last gatherings that I um, attended. And, and um, it was, it was just so um, beautiful the way it all worked out, because um, I, I came, you know, from Northern Alberta and um, being in, in Ottawa and uh, having to go home if I want to visit my family. And my dad now lives at the Buffalo Lake Métis Settlement. So, um, you know, he, when I visited him the year before and he, 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 I said, you know, suggested that he come and visit me in Ottawa. And I had like, no, I didn't really think he'd be there. And so, um, you know, a week before Abadakune opened, um, my dad asked about the dates and let me know that he had saved up a bunch of money to come. And so a week before I found out my dad was coming and he'd never been on an airplane before. And so, um, you know, we showed up and picked him. Well, he, he, he was on an airplane for like fighting fires, but he never went on a holiday or anything like that before. And so, um, yeah, and things are digital, you know, at the airport. So he had, to, he got a cell phone and, and, and that was in 2019. And when we brought him to the gallery, um, you know, first of all, I ran into Mata Aho uh, sitting in Bridgehead at the gallery. And so I introduced my dad to to them because we were going to go on another educational program to uh, Akwesasne to look at Akwesasne weavers and Mata'aho weavers and so um, it was a good meeting and he had been late you know to the gallery which is kind of important to the story because had he not been late he would have you know missed that kind of first introduction to Mata'aho um, which was really um, important. We're going to spend, you know, an hour, but then um, on the way to go meet the artist, so we were late to kind of meet your Nango. My dad was going to meet him and see how he could help out. And so um, we were just on our way out to the maker space, which is just in front of the gallery. And um, I hear Randy, you know, that's my dad's name. And I look around and I don't see anybody except for a guard. And the guard is saying my dad's name. And, you know, the day before, literally the day before my dad said, you know, I, I, there's this guy I know, he moved to Ottawa. He goes, can you search on the computer? You know, so 
I did all these searches for him and he never came up. He's not on any social media. And so when he came to the gallery, that was his best friend in Fort McMurray that he had taught how to fish because they were living on the land, like, um, you know, using the the term living on the land as opposed to homelessness is like something I'm trying to get used to. And so for four years, he lived off the land, fished out of the rivers, you know, taught this man how to collect bottles and make a return from it. And in, in return, the man had uh, one night, you know, saved my dad's life from the cold. And so here they are, you know, at Ottawa, you know, National Gallery of Canada, and he works the same place where his daughter works. And so they cried and I was confused. And um, it was, uh, you know, a moment that could only happen with alignment of some sort of starscape, you know, because it was um, one of those things that you kind of like write in a book and never think it could really happen. Um, but then we went outside and then we spoke to your Nango and, um, uh, you know, your was, I was kind of still in shock and like <laughs> introducing your, and, you know, he's like, my dad's like, well, what do you need made? And so he's like, wow, this is great. So we taught him how to make uh, fleshing poles, fleshing beams. Um, and, you know, we got some great like traditional knowledge and you know for me a newfound respect for my dad that I never knew he knew how to you know build a, a smoker for um, smoking hides or um, you know fleshers uh, actually he he made this one um, while we were there and Dana Danger brought a bunch of um, like moose legs and so she she brought it in a in a cooler in a blue cooler and so um she she's like what do I what should I do with these you know I thought we could make scrapers maybe and my dad started sawing and we had to boil them and and boil them in that space and we um were able to get a fire permit uh, which is a reality for an institution um so there there are these like again, educating internally in the institution and explaining why fire is important to a show called Abadakwane, which means to continue the flame. And so when um, we met the fire chief, uh, um, he came by and Greg Hill, one of the curators of uh, Abadakwane came out and he seemed really like supportive, but you know, kind of stern and tough at the same time. And, and then he told us that he was also Mohawk. And so the curator of Abadakwane and the fire chief in Ottawa are both Mohawk. And it's just so, you know, really interesting to meet people that way. And for the fire chief of Ottawa, who's Mohawk, to see these things happening, which he was truly um, um, amazed by, uh, but also had to like follow the rules, and we were able to do that. Uh, and and so, um, you know, we had Grace Rat there who taught us the significance of of skunk oil 
um, Christine Lalonde, also one of the curators, brought in, a, I think, a skunk or somebody brought somebody brought a skunk and uh, I think it was your and uh, Howard and Howard was his kind of like partner making things, too. Um, and uh, it really stunk and they didn't realize that it would stink up a vehicle. And so they put put that in the truck and brought it and then we were able to use the um, skunk skin to make the long poles that were at the top of the Sami architectural library. So they torched it first so it would be black but then they rubbed on the hide of the skunk to you know make the um, make it a, have a little like to stick onto the wood. Um, and then, you know, what, and then one of the things that we, we had talked about from back in, in Alberta is that we grew up with like uh, skunk oil is the super cure for asthma. So if anybody can stomach, you know, swallowing skunk oil, <laughs> um, then, you know, that's, that's another kind of uh, traditional piece of traditional knowledge that we um, was it's kind of common knowledge in our community, but that we were able to share with Grace, who's from um, Barrier Lake, and uh, she had other uses for for the skunk oil that she shared, and it was all kind of um, beautifully unwrapping in different parts of the maker space in front of the gallery, um, where you had people uh, watching the fire and, and boiling and. Uh, bones and making stews and uh, cooking bannock over the stovetop and um, boiling roots, spruce roots, to make the color of some of the artwork, uh, some of the uh, wood pieces in yours. Um, and also the 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 you dye the uh, we were dyeing things with walnuts because we had you know I brought a whole bunch of walnuts from my backyard. We have three giant walnut trees and. So every few years I go through this, you know, giant, like, uh, I'm going to call it um, like hail, walnut hail. <laughs> so it's just um, buckets of walnuts and brought those in too. And, and we dyed yarn and fish scales. Um, we dyed uh, leathers or hides, I should say. Yeah, from, from the ink of, of the walnuts. Uh, and then... Um, we had different artists who were coming in from Abadakune for the opening and some came a few days before and they were, um, they were, you know, scraping hides. So you have, you have like all these artists outside um, helping out with yours project that I literally had five days to put together. So all of the makerspace stuff that was, uh, out there um, before I brought the community in uh, was done in five days. And as soon as I put a notice out on social media, of course, Facebook for Indigenous people and maybe Twitter uh, and Instagram are like the three, you know, top social media. Um, that's a modern traditional knowledge, by the way. You could, uh, our communication smoke signals are through those uh, pipes. But um, definitely, uh, there was a an extreme interest in having an urban, you know, high tanning, and it was like a pop up. Like it wasn't something we advertised because there just wasn't time, um, or we didn't know, we didn't have an idea of the scope of what 
yours project needed in terms of that relationship to the community. And once it was in place, the people who participated um, became a part of the, the piece itself. They became a part of the knowledge that got tucked away into your Sami architectural library. Um, where, you know, we see these messy spaces, you know, there's a fire and some wood parts and animal parts and people and, um, you know, like crazy, crazy things that you wouldn't find in an urban environment, you know, a, a moose hide. <laughs> so like a, a skunk hide, you know, things like that, that are being put to use in, in such a way where, the materials have knowledge, the process has knowledge, um, the people coming together uh, have a certain kind of knowledge. And so it, it just felt like the part of the story that couldn't be explained and that, you know, by looking at the artwork itself. And that's what I find um, really, I love, I love the idea that we made something that could never be exactly replicated again and who knows what ideas were sparked you know from one place to another so we closed up um we had to close up after a couple of weeks and we were able to keep it open a week longer than I than the gallery had wanted initially because I, I wanted to make sure that we had smoked this hide and that even though the opening had gone away that there's still community and that it was um you know, a source for us to provide for the community, these places, urban, and people were coming from reserves, uh, or sorry, First Nation communities, I should say, um, to come urban, to, to work the hides and, and learn these things. And we had drummers and we had some uh, singers who were there as well to kind of make the work more lovely. And um, that, you know, we didn't record it, uh, we did, we, we, maybe some people had a few snippets of, of here and there, but, um, being able to keep it open and follow through with the process was, was really important for me as an educator, because, um, as much as the artwork is, uh, beautiful to look at, interesting to explore and, and, and all kinds of, you know, ways to experience it, they could never experience that again. And, and that's something that, you know, will live on with everybody who, who showed up. And maybe they'll run into other people who participated in yours artwork, <laughs> you know, and who knows what will come out of that. But it was just like a very organic, uh, I would say, you know, like I said, it was more than organic, there was something bigger there, because um, yeah, it was just, it was just a really nice way to work our way to the opening night, which um, we wanted to make sure that, you know, they were welcomed. And so we um, facilitated a space where um, Indigenous community members from Kitagan Zibi, um, which is a, about two hours north of here, um, welcomed the international artists from all around the world. Most of them were here during opening night um, and there was 73 I think altogether something like uh, some somewhere around there and so um, we just like 
I, I there we worked with some other community members, but there was a, a definite um, connection to like Sakahan where we had the welcoming um, that was close to the river. And there, that's a whole other story. Um, I, I feel like I need to share it because uh, we consulted with someone early on, uh, Claudette Commanda, a local leader, um, the grandniece of um, Will, William Commanda. Uh, so she, you know, we said that one of the creative kind of directors and person whose mother is a spiritual person as well, wanted to uh, think about crossing the river with, you know, this fire because it was Sakahan, it was this fire that we were going to ignite. And so, but the fire was not up to us. We understood that the fire was up to the fire keeper and that it would never leave, it should never leave the fire. The fire sh should never leave its space. And so when we um, uh, talked to Claudette, Claudette said a story of when a bear, you know, wakes up after, um, wakes up after like the winter time, you know, it's kind of grumpy. And, and so like, she never said, don't take the boat on the water. She said, the water's going to be rough because after the winter it's, you know, and it was just like a, a learning process for us and communicating locally and stuff. And so when we, when we did the opening for um, Abadakwane, it was important for us to follow that process as well. And so um, it was a beautiful opening. Um, and we had community members who were involved in your Nango's piece, uh, standing along the ramp with cedar boughs while all of the artists walked through them. And it was just such a significant moment, you know. Anyway, I, 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 um, I, I can't wait for the next one. And uh, we hope it's in five years, but we're not sure. <laughs> okay, so you're listening to Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer. And once again, this episode, we are joined with Chanupa Hanskaluga. Thanks again for joining us, Chanupa. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm doing well. I really am. And today I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this question of uh, the institution and the question of curriculum. And uh, as a way in to kind of talk about this, I wanna reflect on uh, not only the kind of institutional frameworks I'm part of already at Ohio State University, uh, but also a plan for a curriculum that I'm developing and the questions and problems of a non-Indigenous settler colonizer embarking on a project like this. Um, so just to give you some background, I'm already involved at my university with a research group into Andean and Amazonian uh, indigenous arts and humanities called Quechua Wilakuna, uh, which in Quechua means uh, messages with beauty. And so I've already been collaborating and, and having artist residences with indigenous artists as part of that, and also involving with questions of curriculum in that project, which are in development. Um, but then this course that I'm proposing is called Global Indigenous Arts Education for Settlers. And this course is, it's a kind of a, a project to think about curriculum, um, but also from two perspectives. One is that I would only teach this where the focus on being a settler 
And a non-Indigenous person is really at the forefront of the course. And, and that's the only position that I can offer, except in dialogue and in relation to Indigenous artists and educators. And the other issue is that this university that I work at does not currently have the capacity for Indigenous academics to be teaching courses like this. So I, my idea is to kind of prepare the ground a little bit for when that, you know, when that shift happens when that work is done at the level of the institution to hire uh, not people like me, uh, but indigenous faculty that can um, occupy those, um, uh, those, those positions, teach courses like that. So I wanted to give a kind of background to all of this as a way of just offering this up as a, a point of conversation uh, and discussion on this element of the institution and the curriculum. Yeah, well, I think you're spot on. You're staying in your lane, and that's important. <laughs> um, uh, and we need people in that lane, you know, as far as as far as Indigenous folks, because I think you bring up a really important point: is you know, even as an artist, I spend like 75, 80 percent of my time just unpacking things, you know, before I even get to whatever it is that I present. I have to unpack this thing, you know. So um, it's wrapped in the bubble wrap of colonialism and capitalism and um, institutional uh, cultural preservation versus maintenance, you know? And so I have to do all of that unpacking before I get to even present the work that I, that I want to present, you know? And I think it's important if we're gonna be embedding indigenous folks within um, Western institutional spaces to open up these conversations that folks like you do the majority of that unpacking because we don't get to have an ecstatic or um, experiential moment of cultural share um, until everything gets unwrapped, you know? Um, and, and if we spend our entire academic experience um, unpacking things, then we're not talking about our culture. We're talking about the relationship that space has with our culture, you know? And that's not where we're experts, you know? We're experts in our position, you know? Um, and so we have to get out of our lane, you know? We have to drive in, in those spaces and do a lot of effort and work in, in that space. I, I think of myself even doing that and just taking on that responsibility so that future generations can have a more honest, ecstatic cultural contribution to, um, to a global, you know, system than, than I do, you know, because I'm like, well, I'll do that work. I, I can do that work. I'm a pretty good speaker. You know, let me, let me orate in order to, to move through those spaces so that my children or my children's children won't have to, you know, and, and all of that groundwork is already set, but I, we need it. We need accomplices like you in those spaces to start doing that and to screw up, you know, like I need you to make the mistake, you know, um, rather than me, because it'll fall much harder on my head than it will yours, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that's an important acknowledgement and recognition of, of your own privilege and how to leverage that privilege within those spaces. Um, your mistake becomes an opportunity for us to come in and um, repair those, those spaces. And it gives us agency and power in that rather than us making that mistake and then trying to find somebody else to fill in, fill in our, our position within those spaces. So good luck. Uh, uh, I, I think that that's, I think it's a noble, a noble cause, you know, to, to create that. Now, the other side of it that's challenging is 
will the institution ever be the space for us to share our culture? You know, um, is that system inherently so different that even to present it within that kind of like um, educational, academic, institutional space, does it undermine the, um, the beauty of our culture by trying to describe it? you know, through those, through those models. And that's, that's a, that's a trick and that's a challenge. We haven't had the opportunity really yet. So um, I think, I think it's important for, you know, the first wave of indigenous academics and, and stuff like that to hold that space. But, you know, the other thing is like, we're not all experts on each other, you know? Um, I don't know nothing about, about, you know, a, a Lenape experience, you know, I don't know anything about a Diné experience and I live in New Mexico, you know? So once we start kind of modeling indigenous, you know, as a, as an identifier, then we are just automatically holding colonizer space, you know, mental, mental space, you know, where we, where we uh, create colonial model mindset in relationship to, to people, you know? Um, I would be really intrigued to consider what it would look like to, instead of bringing people to institutions, using institutional power and, and uh, leverage to um, see if there's anybody out there who would invite them into their space and experience what it means to be outside of an academic model. We don't learn in schools, you know, um, culturally. That's not, that's not our, our knowledge base, you know you learn by participation, you learn by, by um, doing it, you know, and being it. And that's the only way you can become an expert is by, you, you don't get to be an expert using a knife until you cut your hand. Um, and, and, and then you, then you start to understand what a knife is uh, until then it's all cerebral. And that doesn't really mean anything, you know, until you make that, make that sacrifice, you know, um, and, and that's like real knowledge. And you might have to do it two, three, four times before you really understand. And, and I think that that's, that's an important aspect of, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to describe indigenous culture and um, art and any of these sorts of things, we have to, we have to develop a whole new model of encyclopedia, you know, um, how we describe things, what, that, that things aren't things that, that, that everything is becoming and isn't yet and is and and that's a really difficult space to hold academic power to be an expert on something you can't be an expert because it's becoming you know um so how do you embed that within the institutional models that we have designed already for education everybody's an expert um that's why they get to teach these classes so i think i think that there is there's tricks and challenges in all of that you know um but I don't know. I don't know what the answer is yet because I'm too close to it. It's all dots. It's all dots from here. I need to back up. <laughs> I, I, I definitely. I think I'm still kind of reeling and, and and registering and taking in that question about. Oh, that that comment that you said about it's it, it's for me to make this mistake and these mistakes. And I think that that uh, I really feel that. And I and also this question of expertise. I definitely know that there must be white male academics coming into this space and saying, and that, well, there's actually, this is the, the whole history of colonization, which is like literally of, um, you know, 
generating a sense of expertise out of knowledges that they, there's no relation to. There's only an extractive relation to. And so my position, I often feel like, you know, I moved these, I moved from a department, so I don't have a PhD in the department that I teach in. And so I am in this position where I feel like I, I, I have a big problem with my, the grounding of my expertise, but that opens me up to, to be in this position and make these mistakes, but also to, to, to teach something equating to this class knowing that it is a placeholder, knowing that it is like quite literally and, and, and on, on the other level that, that I am a placeholder in the institution for this. Um, at the same time, I guess this comes back to something that we talked about in our very first conversation and episode, which is this kind of compulsion to say that my life has been transformed by engaging with indigenous artists artwork and what does that mean? Like what, you know, what is that every indigenous art? Like what, what is this, is this indigeneity? But also registering that it has happened and I need to kind of work that out and process yeah. that and, and share that and share that without trying to turning into something different and, and turning like share that as myself and share that with the positionality I have. Yeah, I, you know, we, we always get humbled, you know, we get humbled by these things. And I, and I think a lot of our awe that we experience, you know, um, the, the thing that drives our effort to, to engage with other people because it touched you in a way that, that dropped your jaw and opened your eyes. Um, there is, there's something humbling in that. There's something humbling in experiencing something new that maybe you didn't have new to you right like new and 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 acknowledging that there isn't that you're not alone that you wouldn't be the only person to be jaw dropped you know by by that and you want to be able to like share that like look this has been my experience and i want to i want to share that with other folks who i know you know have very similar filters to me you know but it's it is academia is a is 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 a tricky place like it it its systemic model is not like ours. Um, there are no PhDs in digeneity, you know, um, because anybody who is at that level of expertise is speaking to us from the astral plane, you know, is speaking to us from, from uh, beyond the grave, you know, uh, then you get to be an expert. Um, it's only then that you, you, you get to hold that position. Other than that, you are just a receiver. You know, you are just somebody who's been, um, who's learning and you learn your whole life. And, and I think that's the, that's the, the tricky kind of space of academic, um, validation that is so contrary to an indigenous kind of world model is that, um, there is no piece of paper or prefix to your name that really gets to decide whether you're an expert or not you die trying you know and and uh yeah so it's it's tricky anybody who you put in that position even myself you know I'm even thinking like who am I to talk about what that is I'm sure there are <laughs> indigenous academics out there who are like shut up Chinupa, like it's we're doing all kinds of work to hold space in those spaces and and you're telling me my my 
lifelong effort and education isn't valid, you know? Um, uh, but I think it's, it's systemic, you know, you can, you can definitely go through all of that. You can get your PhD in indigenous studies, you know? Um, but until you recognize that, that indigenous is a really loaded, weird word, you know, as far as, um, as far as we have to remove ourselves from belonging and land and relationship in order to, uh, I don't know. The only way you cannot be indigenous to the planet Earth is if in your mind you've removed yourself from it somehow. And we haven't successfully done that as a species. You know what I'm saying? Like we like there there's probably like a handful of people living on a space station for uh, several months out of the year, you know, uh, that are the closest to not being indigenous uh, so far. And uh yeah, it, I think it's that that word is is I love it. You know, I, I feel like it's a good it's a good word to use to to identify with people who still have a place based relationship. Um, and and there's so much displacement on the planet. But at this point, like at what point in history we've always moved, you know, we've always traveled. We've always generated from one space to the next. Um, uh so it's 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 tricky you know it's tricky to like open up all of those things especially because you're dealing with semantic issues you know rather than really into the into the the grit of what that that belonging and meaning is you know um but i'd be really interested to see how holding that indigenous space within an academic lens is those small kind of forward movements that eventually um cascade into a much broader understanding of what education and and um and and moreover like just making our cultures and experiences a part of that academic model and it coming from us rather than somebody else you know um but we we also harm ourselves um by by holding those spaces uh because we can't I don't know what the Quechua experience is, you know, and so I can't be a, a expert on indigeneity because I don't know what it's like everywhere. Um, I don't know what it's like for you in the UK, you know, um, I don't know, I don't know those things enough to like hold that, that space, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think these are all small steps and I think it's important. Like the, like I said, the work that you're doing is important to create space for indigenous folks to, to be in those positions, to teach things and, and actually have a, um, uh, a foothold within that academic space, you know, but I would be really intrigued to see new models of, of education. Um, the model that we all kind of like gravitate towards as far as, um, academia and institution really isn't that old it's a it's a relatively young thing in the human experience you know there are tens of thousands of years where we didn't have that and we did learn how to use a knife by cutting ourselves um so i i don't think that there is there is not hopeless you know it's not a hopeless effort it is the effort you know and it is the 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 small movements from one generation to the next to be into that in into that position and all the power is tricky and, and academia and institutions and education, that's power. And, uh, and it can, um, 
can move you forward in, in, in a lot of ways and hold you back in a lot of ways. So it's, I think it's navigating it clumsily until we come up with something that is a working model for everybody. And that takes generations, you know? Um, yeah. Like models, models back in Greece, uh, where a lot of this kind of like develop, um, there were simultaneous educational platforms in the Middle East, in Africa, in the Americas, in Asia. Um, and it's just a matter of like, you know, mixing it all up and seeing what comes out in the wash. So yeah, putting my clumsy foot forward, uh, I, will, I will go with your words in mind, Chanupa. And I just want to just um, close this off by saying that uh, I think and I'm hoping you're still up for this, Chanupa, that uh, our next and final episode, at least in this sequence of the show, uh, we had a, an idea that we were going to just take the hour and talk through uh, kind of where we've traveled and gone through with this. And I really wanted to, uh, and, and so I've got lots of questions that would follow up on things that you've been saying, but I'm holding back because I want to save that for the last episode that we have together, which will just be me and you talking through these things. And I really want to put the settlement project kind of at the, the heart of that conversation and the, as a digital online project, uh, because all these questions of curriculum, questions of language, questions of the accomplice, all of these issues, I think are really bound up with, with the digital space that, that occupies too. And so uh, we'll have to wait till the, uh, the May episode of Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer, but as long as you're willing to do that, Chanupa, I'd love to to share that space with you for that episode. yeah no i think that that sounds great richard and I, and i would say like you know that whole settlement project was really built around some of these complications that i'm that i'm talking about like um i don't get to tell everybody's story and so the only way i could have figured out how to like get a small pinch of the variety was to actually invite people who are living it you know um and that's that that's the <laughs> It takes money <laughs> right now, you know, it takes like, uh, it takes interest in the place that you bring everybody, you know, and moreover, um, you got to figure out how to economically make that viable. So, yeah, it's, it is all weird. We'll put the hip and hypocrisy on our next, uh, 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 interaction. <laughs> that sounds good. Okay. To be continued. Thank you, Chanupa. Thank you, Richard. We saw the multitudes and believed there were endless hosts of creatures for our consumption. The birds took flight like a shoulder of the land rising into the air. Schools of fish turned in the current and the whole sun in all its glory shone in the glint of their scales. We had endless land, bottomless wells, clear, sweet air to fill a million, million breaths. And never, never would it run out. And how, how today is it that we can see the edge of this? And how, how today can we not? <laughs>